morning, 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 North Point. How we doing? We okay? I'm always nervous this time of year to see how we're doing. You know, it's, it's like almost winter, right? And like snow's coming today or yesterday or the other day, something like that. Hey, yeah, here's what I want to say. Uh, uh, my name is Chris Carter, and I have trust issues. <clears throat> Some of you are familiar with AA, and that's good. You know the right response. And... Uh, and I, and I feel like a little bit, I'm like just in a room full of my, uh, my priests. So I feel uh, free to confess it to you. Uh, anybody else with me on that? You have trust issues? Trust issues, that phrase, I think that's just a nice way of saying we've been burned a few too many times, so now we're always defensive and maybe a little aggressive in order to protect ourselves from any more hurt at the expense of potential of actually having a good experience with a person, place, or thing. That might have been Wikipedia. I don't know. It might have been me. I have trust issues, but I'm trying to be more trusting, and, and recently got a little burned in trying to be more trusting. Here's the short version of the story. Some months ago, I got a phone call from a number that I didn't recognize. I don't typically answer numbers, period, especially numbers that I don't uh, recognize, and I answered this one on a whim, and it was very cool because I won a trip to beautiful Branson, Missouri. However you feel about Branson, uh, I'd never been there. This was awesome because uh, I was at the time looking for some sort of way to celebrate the empty nest stage of life that Emily and I were moving into, and so this seemed like it would be a great uh, uh, free empty nestcation, right? And so we were excited about it. Uh, on the phone, the lady uh, who was incredibly uh, uh, bubbly and was obviously a cheerleader at some point in her life and super excited about the fact that she was breathing, um, she said, uh, you get four nights in a resort hotel, which I said is awesome. And she said, on top of that, uh, you can have uh, two show tickets, because apparently Branson is considered the Las Vegas of the Midwest. I don't even know what that means exactly. But she said, you can have two show tickets, because there's tons of shows out there. I'm like, that sounds even even more awesome. And, th- and then she said, on top of that, if, if you say yes today, we'll give you uh, two attraction tickets to like some of the things that you can do out there. And I thought, this is just a great plan. And so we started sharing information. I, I gave her my name and address. She just told me her first name. And then uh, I gave her my credit card number and she wouldn't give me her credit card number, but that's fine. And as they read back to me all the terms and conditions, guess what they failed to mention until the very end? Are, are some of you with me? Like, you know where I'm going in this story? You've, you've, some of you have been there. Maybe, yeah, she, she said that uh, we would just need to sit through a very short one and a half hour timeshare, I mean vacation rental property uh, presentation. And I thought that's no big deal. Because uh, an hour of my, uh, of this awesome, amazing vacation, like for me to say no a hundred times, like I'm, I'm wired to say no. This is like easy for me, right? She said, on top of that, it, it would only cost you a hundred dollars for the tax, license, docking, whatever fees. And I thought a hundred bucks for four nights and some show tickets and this empty nestcation and I only have to spend an hour or so at this, at this vacation rental property, uh, uh presentation, which is kind of cool because I love when people try and sell stuff because there is something really interesting culturally about salespeople. And so I'm thinking, oh, this would be great. It didn't turn out exactly that way. It was a little different than what we expected. Um, When we got there, this resort hotel was a bottom-end hotel from 1947. I'm pretty sure Dirty Dancing was filmed there. And for you who are 80s people, you remember that. And it was, I'm not kidding about this part, it was literally set to be destroyed the end of this year. (laughs) 
we were pretty much the last guests in that hotel. The, the show and attraction tickets were cool, but to do anything uh, beyond the, the, the low-end stuff, you had to pay a small upcharge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what a small upcharge is. Here's the real p- kicker, though. The kicker, that hour-and-a-half timeshare presentation was actually a four-hour hostage negotiation situation. We were the hostages. They literally had us on a bus away from our car so we couldn't even use the, hey, we have to go to the bathroom and climb out the window, right? It was four hours of hostage negotiation, and so I have trust issues. Anybody else? You're a little more with me on trust issues? Trust is a big deal, and today we are in a series. We are coming down quickly to the end of a series that we are calling Holy, Holy, and Yet Still Holy. This idea that we are full or complete in Jesus, that we lack nothing. We're fully equipped to live lives markedly different from the world because of our relationship with Jesus, and yet we are still holy. We leak. Not that our righteousness somehow leaks out or our right standing with Jesus leaks away or somehow we become less saved or unsaved. That's not theologically accurate. But more like the the world, the stuff around us leaks into us and begins to mess with who we could be or should be or what it looks like. We're just not living the full life that Jesus promised in John 10 because sometimes stuff leaks into us. And we've, we've looked over the last nine weeks at how that plays out in relationships and in marriage and in leadership and in, in, in community and in suffering. And just a reminder that all of this is written by a guy named Peter. Peter, a a small businessman running his small business of fishing operation turned Christ follower. And he wrote it to a group of Christ followers who are just trying to figure out life in, in the midst of all kinds of culture of persecution, which brings us to today, which if you have a Bible or if you have the app, if you'd open up to 2 Peter chapter 1, that's, that's where we want to spend our time this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 12, the, some of the verses will pop up behind me. The app has uh, some more info in there for you to kind of peruse, but I, I just I want to talk about this issue of trust. I, I think you'll see where we're going in a minute. Chapter uh, 1 of Second Peter, starting in verse 12, it says this, So I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made it clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This, this little paragraph is a transition paragraph between what Peter just communicated in the verses above it, which, which Rick did a great job unpacking last week. If you weren't here last week, man, go online and check that out. Just this idea of what this progression of spiritual growth can look like. So add to your faith this, and then add this, and then add this. And so Peter unpacks that, and then he has this transition paragraph where he says, it's really good to remind you of those things. That, 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 that those things are true because of the relationship you have in Jesus. Like, like Jesus made those things possible. Jesus has made you holy, holy, fully able to live a life markedly different from the rest of the world. And so Peter says, I just want to remind you of these things, that this is incredibly important for you to remember. And those things seem kind of basic. Like they're just the basics of the faith. 
And, and, and Peter goes on to say, because I only think I have a little time left. That's actually true. Peter lives maybe another couple of years after this, and then he's, he's killed as a martyr for Christ. And so he, he just has this sense. I don't know how he got that sense. If, if, if he just kind of knew or he could see the end or if somehow God revealed it to him. But he says, Jesus made this clear to me. I only got a little time left. And he says, so I just want to remind you of the basics. That's really interesting that, that in Peter's sort of last letter to his people, he just reminds them of the basics. There's not these, this incredibly complex stuff that he says. He just wants to remind them of who they are in Christ. He reminds me of a story of a woman who complained to her pastor, and she said to him, hey, pastor, your sermons are too basic. Like, I already understand all this stuff. Like, it's not very deep. It's funny. We hear this occasionally. I've heard this before. And his response was classic. He said, ma'am, once you've mastered all those basics and actually began to live them, then I'll feel permission to move on. I would never say that. It's like shots fired, right? But something interesting to that, the basics. And so Peter just says, I want to remind you of this stuff. And then he continues on in verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says, we didn't make up these stories. Like this stuff that we're telling you about who Jesus is and the fact that that we have all we need in him. We we didn't make those stories up. We saw it. We lived with Jesus. The, the, the reality is the most powerful apologetic is the power of a changed life. So as we share with our friends and we talk about who Jesus is and, and we try to, um, back, in that, back in the 80s and early 90s, there was all these programs where uh, like, like uh, six weeks and 10 weeks, you'd go and learn all these apologetic tools to force all your friends to follow Jesus. And, uh, and that's, that's fine. There's, there's something good to that. But, but, but those those. I don't know, maybe my friends went to some other program that learned like 10 ways to argue your Christian friends. Or I, I, so there was just this debate that consistently happened. And I just, I just say the thing you can't argue with is the power of a changed life. Right? And so Peter and these, these, these guys that were just normal people and the ladies that followed Jesus around, they're just normal people and they had these incredibly changed lives. You just couldn't argue with that. Peter in particular, you think fisherman, this lack of faith. He acted like a junior high boy a lot. He was often off the mark somehow. He's saying and doing the wrong things. And now he's like Peter forevermore. When we think of Peter, we think Peter, this, this leader of the church, this guy who writes portions of the Bible, but never forget that Peter was just a, a guy, <laughs> just a guy who has this interaction with Jesus and, and his whole world changes. It's interesting because in this section here, Peter refers to an event in his uh, three years that he walked on the planet with Jesus that I just find interesting because there was a lot of things Peter could have referenced. Peter could have referenced that time when he walked down the water, like he saw Jesus, and he was like, hey, tell me to come to you if it's really you. And Jesus was like, all right. And he walked, and he walked on. He could have referenced that as this pivotal moment when uh, the interactions between he and Jesus just made sense. He, he, could have, he could have mentioned the time where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick, and she's going to die, and that's a whole interesting story. And Jesus just came, Peter said, I heal her, and he healed her. And this is interesting. He could have mentioned a lot of things, but this is what Peter... Uh, mentions here in this letter, and we'll just read you the version from Matthew. Each of the Gospels contain a version of this story, but in Matthew chapter 17, this is the event 
Peter references here. He says, after, uh, the, the story says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. And we remember that Jesus often brought these three disciples with him, probably because they were problem causers and he needed them close to him or they needed remedial tutoring. They needed to see these things where other guys didn't need to see him so much. And it says he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now that would, that would tweak your day. <laughs> if that happened in your morning devotional time with Jesus, you're reading the Bible and talking to him and like he showed up talking with a couple of dead dudes and he's like, hey, what's going on? And you'd be like, ah, okay, so that, that's pivotal. We get that. And Peter says to Jesus in verse 4, he says, look, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, because Peter often just kept talking until something happened, and while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said this, this is my son, in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That interaction transformed, I think, Peter's world. Like it was being transformed in his time with Jesus, but that interaction transformed his world. I don't know if it was Jesus' face shining like the sun and his clothes turning white. I don't know if it was when Elijah and Moses showed up. I got to think it was when Jesus said, hey, Peter, would you listen to him? Stop the talking. Do more of the listening, right? And somehow that, trans- that just transforms Peter's uh, entire perspective. It was pivotal for Peter and forms the basis of his conviction of relying on scriptures. That's what he says in his letter in 2 Peter uh, 1.16. That, that right there, that, that example of who Jesus was, transformed his reliance and the reliability of the scriptures. And so that, that, that begs the question for us, are you, who are you because of your experience with Jesus? Are you different Are you convinced Jesus is who he said he is? And does that form the trajectory of your life? Who am I because of my experience with Jesus? Who are you because of your experience with Jesus? There's a danger for people like me who grew up in the church. Like literally I grew up in the church. We went to church like three times a week or something. I went to a Christian school for the longest time. I always did youth group, Sunday school, church, the whole bit, right? If it was open, we were there. And I know that there's a number of folks in here that share that story. And there's a danger for us because oftentimes we don't, we don't see that difference. So my story is like, you know, I, I think I entered into a real relationship with Jesus somewhere around age five. I, I, I don't really know. That's my story. And then I got baptized at age eight for the first time. And, and I knew what I was doing then. I knew that Jesus loved me and I loved him and I wanted to show that. I think it was pretty good for an eight-year-old. But, but at age five or six or seven, it wasn't like I was, you know, killing people down on the south side or selling dope out of the back of my binder or nothing like that. I didn't have this massive life transformation in that moment because I was six. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so sometimes that's a challenge for us who have that story. We're like, I don't really see this massive life transformation. Like I was a decent kid and then I was still a decent kid, right? Then we get into our junior high years and we become maybe less of a decent kid and then you have all these struggles like, am I really saved or not? Because the way I'm living is, ah, and you have this existential crisis of faith, which is so good and so healthy. And hopefully you have good people around you that don't just affirm it like, no, 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 you're saved. But instead go, well, what do you think? And ask you hard questions and you have to churn through that. And and often I tell people who share this story, like, can you think about who you would be if you weren't in a relationship with Jesus? Like, you know your sin. You you know you're lean 
what I leaned, I'm never going to rob a bank. It doesn't get me excited. All right? There are other things that I could see myself chasing without Jesus because my life has been radically transformed by Jesus. I may not have that moment like somebody else has when they were horrible and in a gutter somewhere and doing all the things that they and then Jesus came into their picture and it transformed them in the blink of an eye. And that's amazing. Some of us just have a different story. But the, either way, the idea is, are you different because of your interaction with Jesus? And if your answer is, I don't know. Man, I, I want to I I have coffee with you. <laughs> I want you to talk to somebody. I, 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 want, I want to know. I want you to know. I want to know. Do I know Jesus and has it changed my life or do I not know Jesus? Has it not changed my life? Peter is talking here about the reliability uh, uh, of Scripture. This, this idea of, of we were eyewitnesses. We didn't just make this up. We actually saw Jesus. We can trust who Jesus is. And he finishes this thought in verse 19. He says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. That, that phrase, prophetic message, he's really talking about the Old Testament, what we now call the Old Testament. It's the Bible they had up to that point. The writings of the prophets and the law and the Psalms and the stories and Genesis and all that stuff. He says that prophetic message has been made even more reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, 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 this verse 19 says we have this prophetic message. A better translation of that might sound like we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. This, this, this person, Jesus Christ, this life and eventually his death and resurrection is confirmation of the scriptures. Everything that they had written up to that point pointed to Jesus. They may not have understood it fully. They were a little confused. Some Jews missed it. Some got it. But it all pointed to Jesus. Jesus came on the scene and confirmed all those things. And, and the Bible that we have now, which is the rest of the story, since Jesus was on the planet into the New Testament church time, that's even made more reliable because of who Jesus is. Peter can say that so specifically because he heard this voice on a mountain and say, hey, this is my son, I love him, listen to him. And, and we read those scriptures and we understand that, that we can trust the Bible because of who Jesus is. Verse 19 says that we should pay attention to it. It's like a light to our dark places. The Bible often considers itself uh, light. It, it uses that description. In Psalm 119, it says this of itself. In verse 105, it says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Often the Bible is described as something that shines into our dark places and reveals maybe the things we don't want to see or shines into dark places and shows us the path that we should go. This idea of light was not foreign and Peter uses this, this euphemism until, until the day dawns and the morning star rises. This is just a picture and it was used all over the place in New, in New Testament times as well as Old Testament times of the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. The, the day was often meaning when, when judgment comes, when Jesus returns. And so Peter is referencing back to this fact that this entire scripture, everything that we know, has been made reliable and even more reliable because of who Jesus is. And in verse 20, he, he says this, above all, or maybe even a better translation is, but know this first of all. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture came about by somebody just thinking up something and writing it down. 
See, I, I know that there's folks who just say, well, the Bible was just a book. It's just people wrote down some things, and there's a whole bunch of stuff in it, and it's fine. And, and the reality is that's just intellectually dishonest. The Bible doesn't allow for itself to be called a book of a bunch of man's writings because it makes these huge claims about itself. And because the claims it makes about itself are so linked to who Jesus said he was that you have to deal with that. The, the Bible, if we just look at the, the Bible, this is kind of what we see. It's a collection of 66 books, what we call books. They're really letters and poetry and history and a bunch of other things. It was written over the course of 1,500 different years. Just think about the scope of that. What happens in 1,500 years? That was the time that it took from, the, from when Genesis was penned till when probably Revelation was penned. We're looking at over 40 different authors, different guys, different people, just very different personalities, different types, different ways of writing from three different continents. If you just think about that, 1,500 years, 40 authors, three different continents, think about the cultures that are represented. Think about the people groups that are represented just from one generation to the next. Right, think about the different types and the different ways of thinking and the different ways of wording things and the pictures that are painted. And, and all of that is true of the writing of the Bible. And here's the deal with zero significant discrepancies or errors. Now, I know that you've heard someone in your family, it's that crazy uncle that you invite to Thanksgiving because you love him, right? Say, oh, the Bible's full of errors. You can't be trusted. And I just say, it, it's, actually, it's not, show me. Like, like show me. The errors that are seen are, are, are really nothing more than like spelling errors, some punctuation, which isn't part of the Hebrew writing. Sometimes there's some disagreement just in, in terms of a verb here and there. It's, it, it's such small discrepancies that it changes nothing about what we believe. There's been debate over the years about did this verse belong there? Did this verse not belong there? There's some, so there was always some question about a couple of books like, hey, should that be in? Should that not be in? But all of those things changes nothing about what we believe. It changes nothing about who Jesus claims to be. It changes nothing about how we get into heaven or how we don't. Those things, no significant discrepancies. We, we dig deeper into this. If you're more interested in this, you want to talk more about that, we have a great equip group called Bible Matters. We, we dig into this for six weeks. We have some fun with it because it's, it's an issue that I absolutely love. But, but here, let me say this. The Bible is a collection of writings. The things that God wanted us to know about him and life with him, using human authors and their own unique personality and styles, all superintended by the Holy Spirit, to ensure what we read is what God spoke. The Bible is incredibly reliable because of the document evidence that we can look at, but more so because of who Jesus claimed to be. Because at the end of the day, the reality is we aren't arguing about this book and if we can, you know, know that word or that word. At the end of the day, we're really trying to answer the Jesus question. That's the question that, that, that everything hinges on. For folks to say that a bunch of people just wrote this, it's not intellectually honest. For, for people to say that, that oh, Jesus was just a neat speaker or that Jesus was just a spirit, he wasn't really physical, he just sort of floated around and said a couple things. Those aren't intellectually honest. We have to answer the Jesus question. Is Jesus trustworthy? Can I trust you, Jesus? I have trust issues. Did I tell you that yet? Can I trust you, Jesus? Power of a changed life, the Bible claims. Can I trust you, Jesus? If, if yes, then who Jesus says I am matters. Who Jesus says you are makes a difference. If no, if no, Jesus can't be trusted, then it doesn't really matter who he says you are, is it? It, it does it. 
And to, to be frank, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> There's no other hope. See, that question, that Jesus question is powerful. It's important. It's vital. Can I trust you, Jesus? Can I trust you are who you say you are? Uh, C.S. Lewis, a 19th century British writer, and, and he calls himself a lay theologian. He's potentially one of the deepest Christian thinkers to date. He, he writes this thing. It's called the trilemma. I know. Now you, now you know a cool word. Uh, and and it's, it's at the heart of answering this Jesus question. Is Jesus trustworthy? Can I trust you? And he says there's really three options to answering that question. There's one no option, which is Jesus is a liar. He's a, he's a full-on liar, which means that he didn't really believe the things that he said about himself. He, he said he was God. He said that he died. He's going to die for everybody's sins so everybody could have a relationship with him and go to heaven. He didn't really believe those things, but he said those things to get chicks, popularity, money. I don't, I don't know because he didn't get any of those things. So, so for Jesus to be a liar and just say things that he knows are not true to try to get something, that, that doesn't seem to be an argument that holds logic because he didn't, what he got was killed. So like at any point in time, if he would have just said, hey, hey, hey squad, just, just playing. I was just kidding around, <laughs> right? Like that would have been it. I don't think they would have killed him. They'd have beat him and let him go and he could have just gone about his life and, you know, did whatever he did. Right? But he, he died for that, the things that he said. He, he was killed because he claimed to be God. That was, that was the religious leader's big beef. Right? And then you, you got these people that f- were hanging out with him for three years and then went on to live these completely radically changed lives. The most powerful apologetic is, is the power of a changed life. And so maybe somebody would die for their own lie. I think that's dumb. But, but would you have hundreds of uh, followers die for that same lie over the course of thousands of years? Not over the next two years. You know, you all got killed in the same compound because we've, we've had some crazies in our culture. We're talking thousands of years of the power of a changed life. So this idea that Jesus was a liar probably doesn't hold. Because there's just no logic to it. Okay, so then the other option, the next option is a no option, that Jesus can't be trusted, and it's this one here. Uh, Jesus, in a, uh, Jesus is a lunatic. Dude, dude is flat out crazy. Like, so he really believed the things he said about himself, that he was God, and he died for people, he's going to die for people's sin, he's going to raise on the third day from the dead, but, but dude was nuts. Right? He believed those things, but they're not true, so he was just crazy. And the problem that we have with that. We have multiple problems. One is that uh, whenever you, and psychologists have done this for years, they've studied Jesus' statements about himself, and none of them compare with what people who are either crazy or mental illness or whatever you want to look at, none of those compare with what people say from those categories. So none of those statements, none of the things that Jesus did match up with someone who would be considered lunatic. And so he's got an incredibly right, psychologically sound life. And you're still dealing with the problem of these radically changed lives because if Jesus was just nuts, like those followers would have seen that at some point, right? Like this dude's off his rocker. (laughs) We're out of here. That didn't happen. You've you've got thousands of years of history of changed lives after that. So then C.S. Lewis says the only option you're left with is the option that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He, He phrases that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And yes, we can trust him about what he says about himself. Therefore, we can trust what he says about us. See, everything that we think and do and experience hinges on that question. My identity being shaped by who Jesus says I am only matters if I can trust him about who he says he is. If you've come to the place where you know he's trustworthy, live it out. 
because we're holy, holy. And, and, and if you haven't come to that place, you're like, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is trustworthy. I don't know if he really is who he said he was. Can I, I want to buy you coffee. I'll even pay. <laughs> like, let's talk. Rick will buy you coffee. He'll, he'll buy you Capital Prime even. Right? Let's, let's talk. Because we think that's the most important question on the planet. Let's have that dialogue. Whatever you've heard, whatever you've read. And if you don't want to talk to anybody because you're like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not letting people know that yet, that's fine. Talk to Jesus about it. Like, he is not afraid of that conversation. It's not like you're going to freak him out and tell him something he didn't know before. He's very comfortable with that. See, I have trust issues. Have I told you that? And my hunch is that probably some of you do too. And I, and I just want to say that I've landed in a place where I absolutely know Jesus is who he said he was. And that shapes who I, I am who he says I am. Amen. If you'd stand, we'll sing. We'll be done.